This is recording number 10810 from the Teaching Ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Vallejo, California. This is the 11th message in the Outpouring series by Randy Bolt. It was recorded on Sunday morning, April 5, 2009. This message is titled, Discerning of Spirits. find the book of Acts, which is the fifth book in the New Testament, turn to chapter 13. Chapter 13. We've been involved in a, a study of the book of Acts called The Outpouring, where we have used that title, or I've used that title. I, I guess I shouldn't say, you know, we, it's me. I've used that title because uh, the, uh, in the first chapter of this book, which was written by, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by a a medical doctor named Luke to try to capture or or record for a person named Theophilus, uh, someone of some prominence that wanted a record of what had gone on. Um, Luke recorded this history of the early church, the birth and the early stages of the development of the church of Jesus Christ. But in the first chapter, Luke records for us the words of Jesus. And when he said to his followers, he said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, where they were, and then in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. It was an outpouring. And so the pages of the book of Acts follow that outline and show us the rippling effects of the the, uh, indwelling and outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the lives of these, of uh, what was a a ragtag assembly of of, uh, people who... uh, had been touched and impacted by the life of Jesus Christ and his gospel and then began to take on the whole world for the kingdom of God. And I felt at the beginning of the year that the Lord was really... Actually, it started before then, but I felt like the Lord wanted us to dive into this book because there, as we explore these, the church in its early stages, primitive Christianity, unadulterated by tradition and you know, religiosity and all that stuff, we capture a picture of a vibrant movement, earth-shaking movement, that when you read it, you just, there's something in you that longs to be more like that, to be part of a movement of God in this earth that's more like what we read in these pages. And you want your Christian experience to be more like what we see here. And um, so I just felt compelled to take this on. We're not exactly going verse by verse, but um, we're certainly uh, close to that. And we are just savoring and capturing the movement, the trajectory, the arc of this story and asking God to do um, what he wants through this in shaping our lives and our church life together. So anyway, we've come uh, to chapter 13, and I'm actually going to begin reading at um, uh, verse 25 of chapter 12. So follow along with me beginning there. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. 
Uh, Luke is very, he's, a, he's a, like I said, he's a physician. He's very methodical about the way that he is recording these things. And he introduces us char- with the characters in the, in the story here in a, a, a distinct way. And uh, you'll remember that Saul and Barnabas have been up, uh, in, uh, 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 up in Syria in a, ta- a place called Antioch. And hanging out with uh, believers there. And I told you that the uh, center of gravity in terms of the extension of the gospel is now shifting from Jerusalem to the Gentile world. And so uh, Saul and uh, Barnabas and several other leaders are now working with a a church there in Antioch. uh, Right on the edge of the rest of the the Roman um, Empire. But they have taken a, a gift contribution down to Jerusalem because there's a global famine and it's really hitting the, people, the believers in Jerusalem hard because they were already under persecution. You remember that story. So they've completed that task and that's where we pick it up here. They're returning to Antioch and they bring with them this guy, John Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Spirit, excuse me, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Isn't there something in your life that that longs for something on that order to happen? Somebody to come to you and say, God has commissioned you to this. I'm sending you into your God-ordained assignment in life. I mean, wouldn't you like for that to happen? God, because a lot of us are asking, God, what do you want from me? I'd really like to serve you, but, you know, uh, I'm a little lost here. And that clarity and that, you know, conviction of assignment. I read those words and I think, dear God. And then I hear this immediately in my spirit. And you need to hear this too. You have been no less and I have been no less commissioned by the God of heaven. You and I bear an assignment for God. You are on a mission for God. Right now, wherever it is you happen to be, wherever you live, whatever job you're in, you are not just earning a paycheck. You are on assignment from God. Then, having fasted and prayed um, and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And what begins now is the first of several missionary journeys that Saul will take. And... uh, so they launch out. Let's follow along with them. I'll put a map up here you can, so you can kind of trace their, this part of the journey. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Sel- uh, from Antioch to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus, that big island out there in the, in the Mediterranean. And um, when they arrived at Salamis on the eastern coast, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Remember, John Mark is with them. Saul and Barnabas and John Mark. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. 
Jesus was a common Hebrew name, so it's not like, uh, you know, they weren't thinking about Jesus. Wasn't he wasn't named after Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is a, uh, it's related to Joshua, very common Hebrew name. And so this guy just happens to be named son of Jesus. I say just happened because it's going to play part in what, what uh, Saul has to say to him in a few minutes. So please take note of that. His Hebrew name is Bar-Jesus. He's a sorcerer. Now that doesn't mean he wore a pointy hat and pulled rabbits out of a hat or, you know, sawed people in two or did things like that. The word here is mad, magas or magas. You can remember the word magi, the, the, uh, the, the uh, wise men who were in pursuit of Jesus following the star. You remember that story? These were the intelligentsia of the day. In fact, the definition is oriental scientist. These were the people who studied everything in, you know, everything that could be gotten a hold of. They, they were uh, the, all of the different sciences that were cl- clearly were not as developed as they are these days, but they were the ones who were in hot pursuit of every, every form of knowledge. And uh, so he wasn't some sort of idiot, uh, and he wasn't some sort of showman. Uh, he was a very intelligent man. But uh, it says here he was a false prophet, now, when Saul met him, or Saul and Barnabas and, and John and Mark met him, it wasn't like he had a sign on his head that said, false prophet. Right? They're telling, uh, Luke is recording this in advance. They discover this later, that he's a false prophet. And what we're going to talk about today is how they came to understand that. So pay, no, pay attention to that. So they meet this guy. Verse 7, uh, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Um, Rome had a very significant presence on the island of Cyprus, and Sergius Paulus was the governor of Cyprus, and his headquarters was in Paphos. And this guy, um, uh, you know, Bar-Jesus, his, uh, his, uh, he was known as Elimus. We're going to find that out in a minute. But this guy, Bar-Jesus, was his um, counselor or his... Uh, you know, he was in his cabinet, so to speak. He, he was an advisor to the Roman governor of Cyprus. And it says here um, that uh, uh, this man, Sergius Paulus, called for Barnabas and Saul and um, uh, sought to hear the word of God and were told he wanted to do so because he, Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor, was an intelligent man. He was not a dupe either. And he heard that Saul and Barnabas were here. And so Sergius Paulus wanted to hear what they would have to say. And so he sought them out. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them. Who's he withstanding? He's withstanding Paul or Saul and Barnabas. And when it says withstand, it means he opposed them. He began to debate Saul and Barnabas seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Verse 9, Then Saul, who is called Paul, and take note, Saul is ditching that name from here on. At this point, he becomes Paul throughout the rest of the New Testament. So that's the last you're going to hear of his former name. He has undergone such a transformation. Remember, on the road to, uh, to Damascus, And he had this life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. He had been in pursuit of these Christians, trying to stamp out this sect. And he himself met the one who he was so incensed against. And his life has been transformed. And so he ditches his old name and becomes Paul for the rest of the New Testament. Right here. 
It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he looked intently at him. So he begins to stare down this guy, Elimus, bar Jesus. What's he looking at? <laughs> What's he looking at? He stares intently at him and said, O oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of God is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. It's interesting that uh, Luke, medical physician, he writes this um, with, with care, uh, taking in the um, symptoms that Elimus experienced. It's not just he became blind. It's not just that God turned the lights off on this guy. It's that a dark mist began to settle over him. And he's describing the immediate onset of something like cataracts. Immediately a dark mist fell on him. He went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. There was something remarkable so remarkable about the combination of the teaching of the, of the good news of Jesus Christ contained in the, in the gospel and the demonstration of the power of God that, that just broke down every intellectual barrier that this Roman governor had and he embraced the gospel. Um, too often in the brand of Christianity that most of us experience, we have a lot of teaching little power or the reverse power and little teaching either way either extreme we don't have the full gospel I want to be someone on a mission for God carrying forth the full gospel I want to be standing on the solid ground of the word of God and extending the power of God to transform and change people's lives. Now I know there's some that don't believe that we need to have all this kind of what they would consider hocus pocus, but I'll tell you what. <laughs> I, I'm turning 54 this week. I've lived long enough to be able to tell you there's a lot of people that need the hand of God touching their life in miraculous, powerful ways. And I am one of them. So what we encounter here is another one of the gifts of the Spirit that are recorded for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are nine gifts of the Spirit. I told you that as we made our way through the, gospel, or through the book of Acts that I would note the times when one of those power tools, one of those gifts of the Spirit that are given to uh, Spirit-filled believers or made available to Spirit-filled believers for the purpose of power ministry, when we encountered them, I'd pause and talk to you about it because we want that. We want that. And what we meet here is uh, the uh, use of or, or the display of the gift of discerning of spirits. Discerning of spirits. Paul stares this guy down and look, he's not counting the pimples on his face. <laughs> he's looking beyond the man. He's looking beyond the man. Because, dear one, you know this. There's lots going on that we don't see. My wife and I bought our first house in the city of Pleasanton back in, 
I don't know, like mid-80s. And um, we, now our oldest daughter had, ha- well, we moved in and <laughs> our oldest daughter and middle daughter, one of the reasons we bought this house was so they could have separate rooms because they would have killed one, one or the other of them. <laughs> one of them would have died. Uh, and uh, so it was a, a, a completely... Um, you know, self-serving. It was self-interest that drove us to this uh, to this decision. So we bought this house. They had separate. Finally, finally, the girls had separate rooms. But our oldest daughter spent nearly every night in her sister's room because of fear. She would wake up in the night just overcome with fear, and she would go in and sleep on the floor in her sister's room. And we tried everything we could think of, and we prayed, and you know, prayed. And, and just weren't getting anywhere. Until one day, the, our realtor, and this was long after the sale. Well, when I say long, I mean within, within months of the sale, uh, our realtor contacted us and said that the former owners wanted to know if we'd found their gun. No. <laughs> no, we, we haven't. And he said, well, uh, you know, don't be surprised if you do. Uh, they lived in fear in that home and would and never spent a night in. Well, I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't exaggerate. They they chose not to sleep in the master bedroom, which was on the first floor. They spent their. They lived in the room our oldest daughter was in, for fear, and they had a gun to protect themselves. I don't know the whole story. I just know that these now, as I'm hearing this now, I get it. Something I hadn't seen had been going on behind the scenes. A spirit of fear had been given place to in our house and in that particular room. And now we could, now that we knew, we could go after it with some better uh, specificity in our praying. We could bind that spirit in the name of Jesus. There's lots going on that we don't see. There are kingdoms in conflict. The kingdom of our God and the kingdom of our adversary. Guess who wins? But that doesn't mean that our adversary doesn't put up a fight. And as long as we're willing to just sort of let things go, uh, you know, oblivious, carrying on as though there wasn't any sort of warfare going on, he has his way. But God has given us, made available to us by the Spirit... A, a gift, discerning of spirits that allows us to see behind the curtain and see what's going on there and then participate with God as he, through us, confronts the evil that's around us and in his name brings it down. And that's what we find here in this, in this uh, story where Paul is, is saying, wait a minute. There's more going on here than meets the eye. And he's looking beyond the man. And then he sees, oh, you full of deceit, all fraud. You son of the devil. Remember, his name is son of Jesus. He says, no, son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Remember, when Jesus was accused uh, by the, uh, the religious leaders of casting out devils in the name of the devil, which is kind of an oxymoron. But when, when he was accused of that, 
Jesus talked about what you're witnessing is the finger of God casting out these spirits. And Paul is using that same kind of language. The hand of God is coming upon you now. Not some sort of incantation, not some sort of spooky hocus pocus. The hand of God confronts you and drives you away. And uh, you're going to be blind for a time. Now, <clears throat> I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not uh, talking about this today as some sort of spooky campfire story or you know, something like that. But, but dear ones, because we live in a world, as I said, where kingdoms are in conflict. And I want to be a full partner on the winning side. So I want to talk to you about discerning of spirits, a definition. First, discernment, according to Webster, means the power or faculty of the mind by which it distinguishes one thing from another. Discerning of spirits means a supernatural revelation, a supernatural revelation of the spiritual source of a concept or activity. There are three spirits at work in the world. The Holy Spirit. And he is uncreated, the third person of the Trinity. He is eternal. That means he has always been and always will be as a member of the Godhead. He is assisted by angels. And John tells us he is our helper. There is also the unholy spirit. He is created. He is everlasting, not eternal. Because he was created, there was a point in time when he, uh, when he be- began to exist, but he will exist eternally, uh, or I mean everlastingly. Um, he is assisted by fallen angels. The Bible tells us that there were a third of the angelic hosts who fell or who were kicked out of heaven in he- as part of Satan's rebellion, Lucifer's rebellion against God. Demon spirits, fallen angels. And he is our adversary. There's also the human spirit. Created. You can read about it in these passages that are uh, referenced on the screen. And uh, everlasting. I want to talk to you about um, the value of the gift of discerning of spirits. Because there are three spirits at work in the world... And we need to be able to discern which one we're dealing with so that we can, as I've already said, be active participants, full partners with God in what He is doing. So let's talk about the value of this gift. First, uh, protection from deception. I don't need to tell you that there's all kinds of untruth out there. there. You're going to be encountering stuff that is put out there as truth that is absolutely contrary to the truth of God all around you. And you need to be able to identify, well, where, the, where is this stuff coming from so that you can address it? We need protection from, uh, from, uh, protection from deception from the human spirit. That stuff that's just coming at us from deceived people. And we need protection from deception from the unholy spirit who often uses people, but as in this case, is working behind the scenes. And Paul could have debated Elamus all day and all night for weeks on end and gotten nowhere. It's not a matter of debate. But when he began to understand the source of the deception, then he could go at it in the name of Jesus and deal right, uh, correctly with it. 
Another value of the gift of the discerning of spirits is that it um, uh, provides effectiveness in freeing spiritual captives. All around us, there are people, even in this room, who have had um, aspects of their life um, distorted, twisted, misshapen by falsehood. And God has given us the discerning of spirits so that we can be effective in helping see those people set free. This was an impo- you cannot read the Gospels and not understand that this was an important, vital part of Jesus' ministry. Everywhere he went, he was delivering people from demonization. We, we tend to think of it as demon possession, but the Bible doesn't use that term. I mean, in the English translation, yes, it says possessed of devils. But in the Greek, it's demonized, influenced or harassed or messed up by demons. That's all it means. And there's a broad spectrum of the, of the uh, depth of that deception. You know, from, from mild to, you know, uh, very severe. But along that spectrum, you know, most of us have been hassled by demons in some way. And their, their falsehood and deception and... But Jesus went around just breaking those bondages everywhere he went. It was part of the... He, he said, if the finger of God is setting these people free, then you know the, that God is here. And that's... So the gospel, whenever the gospel is preached, it was meant to be preached with liberty. When Jesus stood up in the synagogue and the, uh, um, as he began his ministry, one of the things he declared he would be doing was setting captives free. And that's what he did. It was also a vital part of the disciples' ministry. You can read that passage. It begins in Luke 9 where Jesus sent the, 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 the disciples out specifically to heal the sick and to deliver people from uh, demonization. And it's also part of our ministry in fact, in Luke chapter 10, it talks about another group of people. Jesus had sent out the 10, uh, I mean, excuse me, the 12. I don't know where I got the 10 from. But anyway, he sent out the 12 to, uh, to heal and to deliver people from uh, demonization in his name. And then another group of 70, not the 12. He sent them out to do the same thing. And then we have read in the book of Acts, we've read about Philip. Philip was just a guy in a church who uh, they selected to make sure that the widows got served. And we read about him specifically going to Samaria and casting out devils and setting people free from, from uh, the, the way that the devil wants to twist things around in our lives. And in Mark chapter 16, when Jesus is commissioning his church, and if you are a follower of, of Christ, you are a part of this commission. And he said, you will cast out devils in my name. So it's valued for its protection from deception, for effectiveness in freeing spiritual captives, and so that you and I can enjoy liberty, spiritual liberty. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. When it says here that um, Elamus, the sorcerer, withstood Saul and Barnabas seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. To turn. And then when, when Paul is addressing the spirit behind uh, that's, that's motivating Elimus, he says, 
Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Perverting and turn from. Those are the same word and it means to twist. To tie up, to distort, to misshape. The straight ways of the Lord. The level. How many of you guys know what a level is? You put it up there in a little bubble. You want to get in the middle so you got things straight, right? The ways of the Lord are straight. Our our adversary, the devil, wants to take the straight ways of the Lord and twist them around and do all sort of knots with them in our lives. But God... Can not, not only set us free, but use us to set others free. 